0: This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 6.40 Toronto.
1: Well, hello, hello. I'm Andre Pru. This is Tasting Together. And I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong.
2: Hello, Andre.
1: Did you like, that was an impression of you that I was doing off the top. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I could not tell. So clearly you need to work on that one.
1: <laughs> um, I know we're sitting here in the evening on Saturday, but are you someone who thinks about like when the weekend comes along, what you're going to be eating for breakfast in the mornings?
2: A little bit. Um, I will fully admit that my breakfast at home always just constitutes eggs, and weekends is when my partner Eric likes to make what we call fancy eggs. Okay. Um, so he'll always ask me each morning, like fried or scrambled, and then we decide where to go from there.
1: It, there's nothing better than like a fried egg with a runny yolk. I, I will fully admit to that. One of my favorite things on the planet.
2: Yes. Yes. Yes, and I, I am a savory breakfast girl.
1: Savory breakfast? You know I what?
2: I am a savory breakfast.
1: I like to think that I'm a savory breakfast person. Like, I love breakfast sausages. I love bacon. Um, I love hash browns. But then when I sit and really think about it, I'm very rarely having those foods without a stack of pancakes next to them or some <laughs> sort of pastry. Or like, when I'm looking forward to having, you know, bacon, eggs, and toast... I'm not thinking about what kind of toast. I'm thinking about what I'm putting on it. So, like, spending a lot of time in Niagara and, and in wine country, I'm someone I do my own jam making at home. So, like, I'm always thrilled to have apricot jam around the house or peach jam around the house. And it's just, like, I, I'd like to think I'm a savory breakfast person, but I'm 100% a sweet breakfast person.
2: I like jam, um, especially jams without too much sugar and made from fresh fruit, as you described. <laughs> I have been the benefactor of your apricot jam before and... One of my friends growing up, his family made tons of jams, like they jarred and preserved everything. So I used to get tons of jams from them. But I would say that's about the limit of my sweetness if it's not fresh fruit. And maybe that's like the healthy person. I was
1: just going to say, this is like you're completely outing yourself as like a health conscious person. I mean, it's and it's something we've talked about on the show before, too, is it's just like. Monday to Friday, I try to keep it pretty healthy, like full disclosure, when summer rolls around and I really get busy, it's really rare that I'll even bother with breakfast altogether, which is why I really look forward to uh, looking forward to the weekends is just to get my fix with, you know, like he said, fancy eggs, like fancy eggs would, I've never referred it to that, but I think my mindset's definitely the same.
2: That's fair. I wonder if my love of sweets vanished as an adult because my dad is really obsessed with like iHop uh-huh. and some of those mass chain restaurants, you know, where they just give you oodles of pancakes, but not very good. And it's not real maple syrup they give you. It's corn syrup. And we used to go to those places a lot whenever we took road trips.
1: <laughs> I think it's an I essential, just, it's an essential part of road trips, that's for sure.
2: I know, but I think it made me fall out of love with sweet. Breakfasts because I wasn't getting good pancakes or good waffles. But actually speaking about that, okay, Andre, if you are a sweet breakfast person, you said stack of pancakes, but do you prefer pancakes or waffles?
1: Um, The answer to me is always yes. I-, I go back and forth, but I'm always a fan of French toast.
2: Ooh, French toast. Okay. I do have really good childhood memories of French toast that my grandmother used to make, but I think I realized as an adult that, um we were not making it correctly and I will blame our Chinese heritage on that (laughs) (laughs)
1: okay okay so how were you making it that you weren't making it correctly
2: I'm pretty sure that all we did was put the egg uh like on the bread like put the bread like dipped it in the egg and just threw it on the pan
1: oh okay that's
2: that's my french toast not just letting it soak through uh, well, I think we let it soak through, but I think the way North Americans fr- make French toast, or I guess French people make French toast, <laughs> any European makes French toast, there's like, usually there's butter and dairy mixed into the mix too, am I Yeah, wrong? usually
1: eggs, milk, and sometimes a bit of spices, and it was something I learned when I visited France quite a while ago, is that it's not really a breakfast f- food in Europe, they serve it as oh. a dessert called pain perdu, so like the whole idea is you take bread that's a little bit stale, and you soak it in egg and milk, and then prepare it properly and serve it up as a sweet dessert so you know I guess that could be something that we can take home thinking about our breakfast in North America.
2: (laughs) We don't even know what breakfast is anymore. What (laughs) is breakfast? Well You know, you were talking about sweet and I feel like we're missing some really quintessential, I don't know, like quote unquote Kate Canadiana kind of breakfast because, you know, we're Canadian. We grew up with Tim Hortons and Donuts and Timbits were probably part of our breakfast for a long time.
1: You know, uh, growing up in Western Canada, we actually have another chain called um, Robin's Donuts. I don't know why it's never made it down here, but like while, while the word you say Timbit, people immediately know what you're talking about. It's been anyone who's worked in an office has scarfed down. A fistful of Timbits anywhere in, in Toronto, but uh Robin's Donuts, they call the, the donut holes uh Robin's eggs, which I think is pretty cute.
2: Oh, that is pretty cute. <laughs> Do uh, they ever dye them like pastel colors for Yeah, so it actually looks spring? like a bird's
1: egg? No, they don't.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think I just gave I think I just gave them an idea. Okay, Robin's donuts. If you ever if I ever see a pastel colored uh, little robin's egg show
1: up um, <laughs> you want full credit for you it you a yeah. bill
2: for residual yeah
1: <laughs> you know i do love that we're talking about about donuts because i think it's a thing where when tim hortons was acquired by that brazilian multinational um quite a few years ago now i definitely think the quality took a dip and you know i'm not so like i i used to be really excited to go have a donut like it's, it's one of the things too like when you grow up like I played hockey when I was really young grabbing some donuts or donut holes on the way to the rink with your with your dad is just like you talk about Canadiana like my life was that Tim Hortons commercial I just described until I was about 11 years old but being a, a, a grown-up now being a grown-up who loves food to the point where they're letting us talk about it on the radio one of my favorite trends in Ontario and in Toronto specifically is the high-end donut the the rise of like Tim Hortons is no longer, you know, the the king of the donut shops. We have so many options and it's one of those things where I really love them because even a super high-end donut, I think a donut's still like a buck or two at Tim Hortons, but, um, you know, three or four dollars or sometimes even five dollars for a fancy, well-made, basically pastry chef-made donut is, you know, it's an event and it's an affordable luxury that you can grab.
2: Okay, so what are some of your favorite high-end donut spots in Toronto if I was to decide to get a sugar fix?
1: Oh, without a doubt, Glory Hole. Partly because of the double entendre, like the name of the place is hilarious. But I mean, it's one of these things where, you know, the name will give you a chuckle, but the quality of the food really does stand out. Like, it's worth going out of your way to grab one if you never have. Hmm. Well, I mean, they do a whole bunch of like sort of fa- fancy style donuts. Like, the menu's always changes Like I can't even can't even think of uh, what the last one I had was. It's the sort of thing where you walk in there and it's, you know, it's not like when you go into an old school donut shop where you want a maple glaze or something and you have those old standards. Like these are these are fancy donuts. Um, I don't know, Marok. I know you said that you're very healthy and don't do a lot of sweet, but do you have any donut memories that really stand out for you in the city?
2: Um. So. I'm trying to remember the name of the bakery, but I know when I lived in North York, they opened up a bubble tea shop across the street, and I think they combined forces, like, you know, sometimes a space uh, shares a a storefront. And inside that Cha Time, I think that was the bubble tea shop, they actually ended up um, having like a bakery inside of it, a little Asian bakery. And they kind of made and, you know, like Asian pastries, a lot of them are extremely fluffy. Mm -hmm. And so we had some very fluffy, I think, donut like things. Now, if I had to say child memories, I will say like when I want my sweet fix, I want things with filling inside of it. Like I don't want a hole in the middle. I want things stuffed with jelly and stuffed with maple cream or Boston creams and all of that stuff. So if you have any favorite donuts. Our favourite donut shops When recommendations. Those are the ones that you're going to win me over.
1: Right on. Well, I think we've decided to make this whole show breakfast related. When we come back from the break, we're going to dive into a a topic that I think a lot of people will care a lot about. It might be a little controversial, but for good reason. And we're going to unpack some of the best brunch spots in Toronto. And I don't know. Are we going to be talking about dim sum as
2: brunch? It absolutely is brunch, at least in the North American context. I will include it.
1: All right. Well, that's coming up after the break on six forty Toronto. We're tasting together.
0: Welcome back to Tasting Together, Toronto's news. Today's talk. Six forty Toronto.
2: It's approaching dinner time on Tasting Together, and I'm your host Maroki Tong, but Andre. Are you planning for brunch tomorrow? Because I'm already thinking about tomorrow.
1: You know, honestly. I don't think we'd be good hosts of a show that focuses on food if we weren't thinking about our next meal already. I, <laughs> I We know. talked about it last segment, but I predict French toast in my future.
2: But it's supposed to be a dessert. Maybe it's your dessert after dinner.
1: <laughs> I said French toast. I didn't say pain perdu. So I think uh, I think we're good. And, you know, it's something you talked about in the last segment as well. I think we were saving it for this one because we are going to unpack something that some people will likely find controversial. Because I think everybody in this whole city, in this whole massive city of Toronto, has their favorite brunch spot. And I think there's a lot of people, you're sitting in the car right now, you're probably correct. The thing about brunch is it's just like it's one of those things where it's hard to screw it up. Um, And I put little asterisks beside that because you mentioned that one of the reasons you're adverse to sweet breakfast is just your experience with the road trip brunch. You know, I am completely with you on the fact that if you're going to a place and they're serving you maple syrup, it better be real maple syrup.
2: And here's another question for you, Andre. And maybe it's because brunch was never really, you know, part of my culture growing up. Is there really a difference between breakfast and brunch food? Because I think there's a lot of overlap there, too. So what, (laughs) where's the difference? Like, when does it change? When does it become breakfast to brunch?
1: Um, Well, I think it's socially acceptable to have a drink or two with brunch where... I don't think it's quite socially acceptable to have a Caesar at 9 a.m. So I think it's that waiting until 11 a.m. so you can crack open a disagrees. crack open, open. I've
2: seen prosecco served at breakfast at the hotel at 7 a.m.
1: Which hotels are you going to?
2: In Milan, I just think it's standard there. Okay, in Italy. in Italy, okay. in Italy. Okay, Germany too.
1: Okay, so we're seeing we're talking about like different cultural norms <laughs> here. I just I don't think you're seeing the the, the prosecco popped. In Toronto at 7am, except maybe... I don't uh, think it's legal. So before we get into some of our favorite brunch spots, like you did talk about the cultural element of you um, not necessarily growing up with breakfast foods. But when we were preparing for the segment, one of my favorite things to do for brunch is dim sum. And this is not going to be a dim sum segment. I'm looking forward to us getting more into detail about that. Um, But you're Chinese by descent and... Yes. um, I had to ask you, is dim sum actually like a brunch thing or an after? Because I know a lot of the like really great dim sum places in Toronto, like Sky Dragon or I know Perfect up in Scarborough there is open 24 hours. So, I mean, it's one of these things where for me, every time I've gone for dim sum, it's a brunch thing. But is that, I guess, culturally correct?
2: I grew up with dim sum mostly being kind of in that brunch, lunch, territory, um, myself in North America, but I got a rude awakening when I went to Hong Kong, and my grandmother wanted to do dim sum at (laughs) 8am. I would totally (laughs) go
1: for some Hargau or Shumai at 8 in the morning.
2: My body was not ready for that at 8am. It was so heavy. It was like the rest of the day was a write-off already. But my grandma you know, woke up at 4am and would swim in the pool, and by (laughs) 8am she was ready for essentially her lunch almost. So... I would say that people definitely consume dim sum earlier than the brunch lunchtime period. They will kind of eat it in the breakfast time. Um, a lot of dim sum places up in the Markham Scarborough area. I know even if you go and order before eleven a.m., there's usually discounts.
1: Okay, um, so they want yeah. you there in the morning.
2: Yeah, I think it's you know also obviously an opportunity to get some crowds in before the big lunch rush comes in. But yes, they usually offer discounts if you come in and order before 11 a.m. So it encourages that. Now I have a personal belief that I don't think dim sums really much of a dinner food. I know I've seen a few restaurants (laughs) sometimes like throw in a few dim sum dishes uh, in their restaurant for dinner. Um, But I don't, I don't think that's really a thing. I think that's just maybe more by virtue of, you know, a North American love for those particular foods. They're also familiar. They're very accessible and a very good gateway entrance into Chinese food or Cantonese style cuisine. So it's, you know, uh, you know, they're small plates. So it's a good way to throw them in as an appetizer in a restaurant that serves dinner traditionally.
1: Okay. So bringing this back to the regular good old fashioned, we're going to call it for lack of a better term, North American brunch. Um, We've got a list. I, I was doing some research just to see what other people and other publications have thought about this. Cause, like I said, everybody in every neighborhood, I think, has their favorite haunt. I know for myself, it's uh, Lakeview, the Lakeview restaurant for brunch. And it's just one of these things where, you know, I think it's tough to find the perfect brunch place because there's so many things you have to factor into it. A, obviously the quality of the food. And I know there's a lot of places in Toronto where you can go for some really fancy brunch. I, I don't know if you need to have something super fancy to say that it's the best because you got to line it up with the other thing, which is price. I don't think a lot of people when they wake up for brunch on a Saturday or Sunday morning with a bit of a hangover, if that's uh, your go-to cure is in the mood to drop 40, 50 bucks for a really great brunch. And that's what I love about a place like the Lakeview is it really just kind of crosses that intersection of price and quality. And also, you know, it's an, it's a nice place to go. It's an institution. Some people wake up and go to church Other people wake up and go for brunch.
2: Lakeview is also very iconic, and you know that very '50s retro diner setting that has been used in quite a bit of movies and TV shows. So, if you really like visiting places that are also movie sets, Lakeview is one of them. I've actually never been there for lunch or brunch, okay? Um, Because it's open 24 hours, we actually go there at two in the morning after performing. Back when I was a performer back in the day, when we like uh, mostly with my circus crowd, once we finish striking everything, you go to Lakeview. And for a lot of them, they get the pie milkshake. So, but, you know, you bring up a really interesting thing, Andre, about the, you know, what what does brunch mean to you, right? For some people, it is maybe their event. Like, it, it's not something you roll out of bed to do. It's something that you are, it's like a gathering. It's an organized meet with your friends. Um, you make an event out of it. So yes. I think it really depends on what you're looking for in terms of your brunch. I know for me, I... Like going to places that are close to me. Yes. um, I I don't want to think too long. Oh, not even that. But you
1: live in, you live in, I think you live in a neighborhood that's actually a little underrated. I think downtown gets a lot of focus when you see uh, what a lot of people put on the list for best brunch places. But um, I I think you and I have both professed our love for Midtown Toronto. And uh, there's so many great places close to you. I don't want to jump on your toes, but, you know, it's, it's just, we love Midtown.
2: Yeah, Emma's on St. Clair is quite fabulous. Uh, So glad that you Um, said
1: that place. That was exactly that was exactly what I was going to say. Like one of my favorite places
2: down on DuPont. There's a place called Chadwick's that is really good. And in the spring and summertime, they have a really adorable enclosed patio as well. I used to go to Insomnia quite uh, more frequently back when I was an artist, especially, but they have pretty delicious brunch there. Um, despite the name insomnia, which seems <laughs> to imply that you should just go there late at night and never sleep. And I will say that when I think of brunch, I definitely think of it in a very North American way. But there's a lot of other cuisines now that have cropped up that also serve delicious brunch. Like yes. I think El Pacho, it's near Midtown as well. It's off Bathurst. I haven't been there yet, but they are they do amazing Mexican food. And they said they are bringing in a brunch. They brought in a brunch which I really want to go to and another one I love. They actually started up as a pop-up and now they have a location in Cabbage Town is Fatouche and I will I will hurt someone for their hummus bowls and they do since you know, since I kept saying that I don't really like sweet foods, they do some amazing tahini pancakes.
1: I do love Fatouche that yeah, that is a very good call, but I've never had their brunch and the whole idea of like tahini hummus bowls and tahini. So do they make the tahini sweet for the pancakes or is it a savory pancake?
2: It's like a sweet and savory. Like I think the pancake itself is a little bit savorier, a little bit nutty. And then they have this, um, I think they top it with some pistachios and I think they use this cardamom rosewater syrup. Oh, so good.
1: It sounds great. Sticking on with the brunch vein, let me just ask you a quick question, Roki, going back to my love of sweet breakfast. Where do you think you can get the best croissants in the world?
2: Well, I'm not the most croissant aficionado, but I would surmise France.
1: Well, we're going to find out whether that's actually true, or maybe it's closer than you think.
2: Well, I'm ready to hear it. So stick around, everyone. We will tell you where the best croissant comes from after the break on 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's
3: news. Today's talk.
0: 640 Toronto. Toronto.
1: I'm André Pru. I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And Maroki, where do you think mm. you can get the best croissant in the world?
2: Well, as I said before the break, André, I don't eat too many croissants. But if I had to say, it's probably from La France.
1: Well, there was something that was brought to my attention earlier this week from Radio Canada, which is uh, that the best croissants might actually come from our very own backyard. And uh, we are joined by Chef Romain Avril, Romain, thank you for joining us.
4: Of course, thank you for having me, both of you.
1: And you've been now- doing this experiment where you've been tasting a lot of croissants that are made in Canada. Have all 50 of them been from Toronto?
4: No, no, no. I so I so far tried 54 and uh, 30 of them were in France. Um, the next 24 were in Toronto. Um, and I'm planning on expanding my, my tasting to uh, other countries. And uh, as a matter of fact, the, the best croissant in the world so far has been determined to be um, in Australia. Um, so I am going to Australia uh, in April to, to be sure that's that's a true fact. Hmm.
2: Well, I think there's no one else more qualified than you to probably taste somebody's foods like croissant because you were born in Paris, right? And Correct. you're yes. based in Toronto now. Now, I've looked at some of your credentials. You were the guest judge twice on Food Network Canada. Uh, Canada's Top Chef and you were a finalist on Food Network Top Canada and you have your own YouTube channel too. I think it's called Frenchie Cooks. Sounds like you yes. do too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So clearly you have the skill sets to talk about croissants. Now, before we dive into that, I want to ask, are, like, what type of croissants are there? Because I always thought that the butter croissant was sort of the classic one and that's like the one and then everything else like the pain au chocolat, the ones with chocolate or the ones yeah. with almonds on it are variations of it but are they considered sort of their own thing
4: they are i mean what i'm judging is the same product because it wouldn't be fair for me to try a almond croissant versus a regular croissant or like a pistachio one or whatsoever um, so i am trying only butter croissant um to make sure that i i'm, I'm fair across the across the board but yes absolutely pain au chocolat um, is a variation although it's the exact same dough uh, but we just change the shape uh, and then we add chocolate, but really croissant really means the shape of it. Um, but then now we have croissant roll there are stuff with all type of pastry, creams and jams and whatnot. And then now we have the cube croissant, which to me doesn't make sense because then <laughs> if it's a cube, then it's not a croissant. But the dough remained the same in all of them. I mean, at least supposedly.
1: I have a hard time picturing what a cube croissant would even look it's like. Just, like
4: it, the the, the it, name
1: literally it, describes what it looks like.
4: What it isn't, you know, like, so a cube is everything but a croissant. So it's, it's. but I get it, you know, like we are um, in a time and place where trains are more important than uh, true value or the true calling of something. So at the end of the day, personally, like, is it going to, uh, yes, maybe if you are stuck to your ways, it's going to hurt your feelings. <laughs> but let's be honest. You know, like people are running businesses. If they want to call a, a croissant a croissant roll, uh, a croissant, then that's fine by me. I mean, if the dough is made properly, uh, the shape is a bit different. And sure, because technically, some of the best pastry chefs right now are not making the croissant, the shape. It's called. Um, they are not a crescent anymore, and most of them are actually elongated and flat. So they are not even a real croissant if you want to call it that way. So. I'm all about being modern and, um, you know, like, you know, like the, the croissant has traveled. It's no longer just a French thing. Um, if you want to be actually accurate, we didn't even invented it. Uh, technically, it was the Australian um, that brought it to France uh, through Marie Antoinette. <laughs> Although at the time it was actually more of a brioche than a croissant and then we transformed into what we know now. But, you know, it's, it's the history of food. It travels, it changes, we adapt um in the end as long as it's made properly and delicious that's that's what i'm looking for
1: okay so maybe breaking it, breaking it down here you've tasted a lot of croissants what according to you makes a croissant good like when you're ranking these like how do we know that it's just not your opinion i mean we've listed your credentials but like obviously taste is subjective but there has to be of some course. criteria that you're
4: using absolutely and that's something i was actually a uh, talking about it the other day, it's just like the taste and colors are to, you know, like to to each and every one of us and that can be subjective. So when it comes to the taste, I would say definitely that part is subjective and people could argue. Um, But there's so many other criteria that you can see just as well as I do. And then I'm showing the whole process. It's not like I'm just biting it and be like, oh, this this is a 10. So we're starting by looking at it. We're looking at uh, the lamination, see if it's even. Um, if it's nice and, and, and you know, if it's flat, then it's not a good start. Everybody can see that. The color sometimes is very uneven. The layers are uneven. Uh, when I'm cutting it, you know, there's no flakiness happening. Um, so there's all these criteria as when we look at the honeycomb structure, sometimes it's collapsed. Sometimes the center is raw. I mean, all these things that I'm mentioning and I'm pointing at the the the, the person who's looking at the video can see just as well as I do. So up to there, I would say there's no criteria of, of bias. I'm being very partial, I'm looking for the taste of butter, I'm looking for texture, uh, so I'm not looking for preferences. I'm looking for kind of like, yeah, that tastes really good or like, that's horrible, you know what I mean? That's dry, I mean, all these things that I see and now people are sending me their own reviews, so my DMs are literally <laughs> 10 times a day, people doing their own review based on my criteria and they get it, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I didn't vend the product, I'm not a baker, I'm not saying that I have the the truth, um but based on what we all know i think people can be the judge of their own
2: i think it's a great opportunity to start conversations as you indicated right you said your dms are now overflowing so when you come out with an opinion of any kind and you know no matter how qualified you are there's always going to be someone who says well then here's my particular opinion and here's whatever now i have a question about you know you, you you gave some standards and specifications about quality and maybe this is a really random question, but are more layers actually better when it comes to making a croissant?
4: No. So, I mean, to a point, yes and no, is the right answer, I would say. Um, obviously, if you start with three layers, it's not going to be as good if you have 64, for example. Um, mm. So, But um, going over 128, I believe it is. Um, so I think there, there has to be um, a minimum and then a maximum, or at least it doesn't really matter. It's just a waste of time. So the quick answer is like 900 layers, which sounds crazy. Um, I don't think it would make a difference I don't know if, if it would be interesting. I think when you are in, um, um, two single fold, one double fold, uh, that's pretty much like the basic, uh, croissant fold that bakers are doing. Um, that's kind of like the sweet spot, And that's where you're going to have like a beautiful, um, array of layers without being extra and without having something that literally has nothing. And you are just eating like a dense pastry.
1: I know that we've just gotten very,
4: very technical on
1: how croissants are made. (laughs) And like I've told the audience before, I'm married to a pastry chef, so I understand what you're saying. But if you're really curious about what Romain just said here, go to YouTube and just Google how croissants are made. I mean, there's different uh, technologies and things that people can use to scale up, but it's all kind of the basic technique of taking dough, folding it over and just building these layers and layers of flaky pastry. And it's... It's done in an artisanal way to get really, really good ones. Now, the moment of truth. You cl- you cleared the record that the best croissants on the planet aren't, in fact, Canadian. But I know we can get some really good ones in Toronto specifically. And I know you've tasted some of them. On your list and on your ranking, what are some of the best croissants in Toronto? Where are people going to, uh, going to get their fix here after they're done listening to the show here?
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can, you know, like technically I can't take you the one that aren't up yet because then, you know, like, oh, oh I come on, if you give us a hint. <laughs> but um, from, the one, from the one I've tried so far, uh, Le Genie um, was for me the best one I've had. Uh, one I'm posting in a couple of days, uh, Tasso uh, was very, very good. They work pop-up style, so it's a bit harder because you have to order them on the Wednesday for the Saturday. Um, I've had some, some great one at Nadej uh to was really good as well from the one i've tried oh, classic so we yeah we do have we do have multiple ones that are great uh but in the same way there was some great one in, in paris um and also some really bad ones you know what i mean so i think it's like everything in the world um you know when you when multiple people are doing one thing sometimes it's fantastic and sometimes it's not as good as i mean it's bad um although we've we've had some bad ones i mean i did try the one from and i'm sorry canada but I've tried one from Tim Hortons and that was pretty, pretty, pretty violent. <laughs> it's pretty bad. No, I'll agree with you on that.
1: <laughs> with apologies to Tim Hortons. But Romain, well, I want to thank you so much for helping us break this down. Where can people follow you so that they can get a look at your uh, croissant experiment and, and your tasting so we can find out who is making the best croissants on the, on the planet?
4: So you can find me on most social media as uh, Chef Roma Avril. Uh, that's on Instagram, now YouTube even. You can find me there, Facebook um, or Frenchie Cooks on uh, TikTok. And I do post, um, I did actually post a croissant video during the pandemic because I wanted people to kind of understand uh, how hard and difficult it is to make one at home, especially. And then I do a lot of reviews, videos, critics, uh, teaching people how to make food because that's kind of like my, my job. But yeah, a lot of fun.
2: Well, we super appreciate your time, Romain, and I promise I will visit at least one of the spots you recommended so that I can change my mind and eat croissants more often.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. And coming up after the break, we are going to take a look at who's making the best whiskeys in Canada as the winners were recently announced. We've sent our very own Danny Longo to get the skinny on how that went down. That's coming up on Tasting Together 640 Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's talk. 640 Toronto.
2: From the top croissants in Canada and France and all over the world, now we're moving to the top whiskies. I'm Tong on Tasting <laughs> Together, and I'm joined by Andre Pru. Andre, do you drink a lot of Canadian whiskey?
1: Um, I drink some of it. I'm more just chuckling at the fact that at the top of the show, we mentioned that this was going to be the breakfast hour. I do drink some Canadian well, whiskey, but never <laughs> for breakfast.
2: Well, we did talk about brunch, too. And we did so we can have alcohol at brunch, and I'm trying to think of a cocktail that has whiskey in it. And we're joined by uh, Global Newsrooms' Danny Longo. Danny, do you know of a cocktail that uses whiskey?
0: Oh man, no, I do not. <laughs> I can't go to Jeez, think of what's one. I mean, wrong with you guys,
1: right? Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Coke. Yeah, that's a simple cocktail there. there you got old. I, I like. I think. Uh, Canadian whiskey makes an amazing old-fashioned anyways if you're talking about old fashioned for breakfast though yeah I don't know if you yeah you're right that's all I mean you got cherry I mean fruit for breakfast anyways we're spending a lot of time just talking about the fact that while we talked about best croissants we just have to take a look at some of the best whiskeys in Canada and Danny we sent you to do uh, a little bit of digging for us and this is what you brought us
0: the 2023 Canadian Whiskey Awards were held last month, and it was a craft distillery from Vancouver that took the top prize. Davin DeKergamo, founder and chair of the judging panel at the Canadian Whiskey Awards, says Canada's finest whiskey is distilled by one of the country's smallest distilleries.
3: The biggest winner was uh, a whiskey that was a surprise. It comes from Sons of Vancouver, and uh, it's called... Uh Palm freeze and a tropical breeze
0: de Kergamo says the whiskies are evaluated and scored in blind tastings by an independent panel of whiskey experts
3: well, they're all prominent uh, whiskey writers or, or bloggers in Canada who speak respectfully of Canadian whiskey
0: so what exactly is the criteria to determine what makes the country's best whiskey de Kergamo says it's pretty straightforward
3: we really are looking for for whiskies that stand out because they have great flavor. We used 10 judges, one dropped over this year, so we used 9, who just tell us essentially which ones they like the best.
0: He says they also rotate the judges every year so that those that may advocate for a particular style of whiskey aren't favored. And this is the first time in the 10-year history of the Canadian Whiskey Awards that an artisan distillery has taken home the top award. Sons of Vancouver took home a total of 6 titles, and DeCurgamo says that they weren't really ready for this kind of recognition.
3: Sons of Vancouver, I think they were... They weren't surprised. They were shocked that they uh, even got a gold medal, and they just really weren't ready to, <laughs> to capitalize on the on the win.
0: Palm trees and a tropical breeze was a limited release in the summer of two thousand and twenty-two, and sold out at the distillery within a week. De Kergamo says for past winners, it usually means a huge spike in sales, and will definitely help all the other brands at the distillery as well.
3: Last year, when Crown Royal uh, Winter Wheat won, uh, the next by the end of the next day, the LCBO was totally sold out. And we commonly see a run on the stores, not just for the winner, but for the top few whiskeys.
0: He says Canadian whiskey stacks right up there with the best in the world if you're willing to spend for
3: it. The thing with Canadian whiskey is people tend to buy the cheap stuff, and the cheap stuff is not connoisseur quality whiskey, usually. If you spend a little bit more, you can get whiskey that is just as, as good as scotches at five times the price.
0: Some other major winners at the 2023 awards include Crown Royal, Rifle Rye, Yukon Brewers, Lot Number no. 40, Divine Distillery, Wayne Gretzky's Distillers, and Last Straw Distillery, making a near even split of awards earned by Canada's largest and artisan distillers. Danny Longo, Global News. Well, Danny, thanks so much for pulling that together
1: for us. It had me thinking about my own buying habits and I think a lot of us when we see bottles at the uh, LCBO we will notice gold metal stickers on them or sil- silver metal stickers on there that's meant to entice us and and the last one I remember making big waves was um the uh Crown Royal Northern Harvest way back in 2016 that the LCBO couldn't keep on the shelf and that one wasn't
0: very expensive yes me and Davin we did talk about that one as well and I think that's uh he's he mentioned that was part of the the motivation for having these awards is to give these these uh, distilleries, you know, some credibility and you know a chance to sell their products. But it was kind of a problem with uh, the winner this year. It was a very small distillery. Um they sold out in under a week when they actually released the uh, the whiskey this year uh, and I love the name Palm Trees and the Tropical Breeze. Oh, yeah, doing a
1: bit of digging on that distiller they come up with pretty cool names for the whiskeys. Uh, every release that they do. So it seems like that's that might be the only version of, of that whiskey that we'll ever see to the market and have to see what they come up with next.
2: I wonder if that problem, it's not necessarily restricted or confined to small distilleries because when Alberta Premium won that one award, I think a year or two years ago, it also was sold out and impossible to get everywhere as well. And Alberta Premium, I would like to say, is a much larger distillery.
1: It is. I remember that whiskey. I have a bottle of it downstairs. It's for their cask strength rye. It's something I try to collect every year. I'm not, uh, like, my culprit, I'm not a huge fan of Canadian whiskey and I prefer bourbon. But that being said, I'm always on the hunt for it, which is why the reason we're talking about this, we got um, a press release from Corby, who represents Lot 40, and Lot 40. won um, won a couple of awards at this competition as well so I'm going to be looking for the Lot 40 Dark Oak next time I head to the LCBO.
2: Well I have this memory right I think maybe a lot of us associate Canadian whiskey as subpar whiskey as you know Danny indicated in his interview that a lot of people tend to just buy the cheap whiskey so this is not whiskey you're sipping this is whiskey you're using the mix um, maybe just to have a good night but you're not necessarily swirling it switching it judging it you know and and sipping on it the way we would find scotch and i actually remember a few years ago that and when i say few it might be closer to 10 years ago going to a tasting at lcbo and i think it might have been jp wisers but they had rebranded everything and Hmm. i think even at the time they weren't even calling it JP wisers i think i only found out because they had some of their um bottom shelf stuff taste um available to taste as well And they had done up everything in these really sleek bottles and they essentially were saying well if people aren't going to reach for the brand because they affiliated with cheap whiskey we're just going to white label the whole thing
1: but i think the other thing too is because this product is produced domestically it is one of the few bargains i guess you could say in the premium spirits catalog like the alberta premium cask strength rye comes in at about 80 or 90 dollars and just like it was said in the report you know, to get a bottle of in 16 year, which is, I think for a lot of people that like really kind of entry level to ultra premium is like $160 and you could still get really good award-winning Canadian whiskey for less than a hundred bucks.
2: I'm trying to think of which one, if I have any particular favorites, my partner loves Crown Royal and that sort of has become the well drink of the house. And I'm pretty sure one of these years I'm going to gift him the like giant three liter bottle uh, for funsies.
1: It just makes me but... happy that your your partner, who we haven't mentioned this on the show before, who is an American, his go-to <laughs> is Canadian whiskey.
2: It's the purple bag.
0: It is the purple bag. Everyone loves it. <laughs> I used to put my marbles in that bag when I was a kid. All right.
1: So, so Danny, we talked a bit about the awards and, and the selection process and the judging process. Is there anything else from when you were speaking to Davin that really surprised you that maybe didn't make it
0: into the report? There was a few things. The the first thing was he... uh. Looking at the list here, there's a long list of awards. They have uh, flavored whiskeys, they have uh, Irish cream whiskeys, they have a uh, premium, they have uh, value whiskeys, which they called it. And uh, I was just looking for names that I recognized, and 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 I did recognize a uh, Wayne Gretzky's Distillery mm. won a few awards, and uh, that was a bit of a surprise. I I think I mentioned on the show a few year a few shows back that I really like the. Uh, Irish cream whiskey that they have at uh, at Gretzky's Distillery and the number 99 Salted Caramel Canadian Cream Whiskey won Cream Whiskey of the Year. And they also won the Best uh, Value Whiskey of the Year as well. So oh, wow. uh, that was a bit of a surprise. And, and, and we mentioned um, when they first started, they were not that great. And they've really come on. And uh, the number 99 Double Oaked Whiskey was the one that uh, won the Whiskey Value of the Year. So uh, yeah, they've definitely uh, come up. Uh, you know, there's just so many to choose from. The premium whiskey as well, that one, I don't think we mentioned it. It was um, Proximo Spirits Canada, Pendleton Director's Reserve is the name, which again, Not available on the market. Not available on the market. And he did mention that was was one of the big things. uh, The big takeaways for me was that uh, they may have to rethink the way they judge these uh, whiskeys. They want to make sure that these products are available for customers to try. So I don't know how they could possibly change the judging and make sure that they they have a a ample supply, but uh, it's something that they're looking at, he said.
1: Oh boy, Maroki, I'm sure this is something you and I, we could probably spend an entire show talking about how the archaic liquor laws in this country need to change so that a product that is produced in this country could be available from coast to coast, but I will step off my soapbox.
2: Yes, but one good takeaway from what Danny said is that there's a lot of whiskeys that have won awards. So even if there is one that isn't necessarily available or completely sold out, as they said, for the palm trees and tropical breeze, if you look at the Canadian Whiskey Awards website, you get to look at all these whiskeys. And if you're looking at something new to try, you can just pluck one out of this monstrous list.
1: Next week, coming up on Tasting Together, we are going to be talking about another topic that I'm a curmudgeon about, which is wine and chocolate. Where Maroki, I think you're going to try to change my mind that this is, in fact, a good pairing. I staunchly disagree.
2: We'll see, we'll see. And if you guys are curious about what that's going to be about, tune in next week. We air Saturdays at 5 p.m. We're tasting together on 640 Toronto.